When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Save big on your Memorial Day barbecue, all in the Kroger app. Get half gallons of delicious Kroger milk for $1.29 each. Then get flavorful Tyson Natural Boneless Chicken Breasts for two forty nine dollars a pound, all with your card and a digital coupon. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today, or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details. A lot of you who are listening to this is you're going to really resonate with because a lot of you have been going through a lot of personal life struggles and so often it's multiple struggles. Maybe it's when you were growing up or maybe it's going on right now. And I call them that complex struggles. It's layers and layers and layers of struggle. Well, I'm going to be talking about talking with somebody who has kind of rose from personal life struggles. And then he became a mental health influencer and advocate on social media. And I want, I really want you to pay attention to this because he's not a mental health professional himself. He's not a, a clinician, but he works in the mental health space. And I want you to hear kind of his why, why is he doing what he's doing? And then we'll listen in on how he became a social media influencer. Really cool. So the title of this episode is Rising from Personal Life Struggles to Becoming a Mental Health Influencer and Advocate on Social Media with Brendan Kelly. Coming up. Welcome to the Mental Health Today Show. My name is John Cordray, and I'm a licensed therapist, and I'm also the host of the Mental Health Today Show, and I'm so happy that you are here. Very, very happy, and I cannot wait to introduce you to Brendan. And like I mentioned at the very beginning, he is not a clinician, but he has lived mental health. He's lived through it. He knows from a personal perspective what it's like, and now he works within that mental health space. And Brendan grew up with serious mental illness and substance abuse in his family. And he became a mental health advocate because he saw what happens when you don't have access and support and resources or even awareness for mental health. Brendan has been fortunate to work in entertainment as well as the digital health startups in a myriad of roles. And I can't wait to hear about those. Brendan, welcome so much to the, to the show. Thanks, John. I'm happy to be here. Uh, I'm happy that you are here. And I know you have a really interesting story and really interesting background. I would love just to kind of jump right into it, if you don't mind. And let's talk about some of your, your personal life struggles and, and what those were. Yeah. I mean, it's interesting because when you're a kid, you don't really think of it as struggles. You know, you look, you, <laughs> you look at, at other kids in, in your neighborhood and you're like, well, they've got it really bad. My, it's not so bad over here. And so I, I grew up in you know a suburb of Boston, Massachusetts, and in a very Irish, Italian, Portuguese neighborhood. And 
I think part for the course was alcoholism, right? Like all of these immigrants come over and, you know, my, my dad included, and, and they, they learn to deal with things the way that has been passed down from generation to generation. And that's men are old school. They don't talk about things. They, you know, they go take action and, you know, whether that's positive or negative, <laughs> they take action and they, and if they get into a spot of trouble, they, they end up drinking uh, quite a bit. And so that can go a number of different ways. But in my neighborhood, that was super common. And it was just the way that we, we all grew up. And so I didn't know any different. I thought that was absolutely normal. You know, my, my dad was a functional alcoholic. So he went to work every day and he provided for his family, you know, and he didn't come home and, and you know, throw us down the stairs or anything. And so I, I didn't comparatively, it didn't feel like I had it that bad when I looked at some of my friends that I grew up with. But, you know, later on, you, you start to realize that you don't really have a relationship with your, with your father and, and there's, there's abuse and, and it was, it was tough, but there's a part of me that always thinks like, ah, it wasn't as bad as, as my neighbors or the folks across the street. And I think that's, I, I think that's pretty common as well. And then as a, as a young adolescent, you know, I started to, to drink alcohol and, you know, there's a, there's a bit of escapism. There's, you know, modeling that you've gotten from an early age where you think this is just what you do. And so I found that I had, a, you know, an addictive personality from the get-go and, and any kind of struggles I had as a kid or as a young man, I, I found that the, the primary solution was to self-medicate. And so it wasn't long before I found myself in, in trouble and, and needing to get help. And I would say, gosh, probably when I got to college, I was, I was always, I knew that the only way out of, of Boston for me was to go to college. And it wasn't a given where I came. I came from a very blue collar community. And so you, you either became a town, townies or the kids that we would, <laughs> we would call townies. They're sitting on their lawn, they're drinking beers, you know, they just, they never leave. They're like, what's up, kid? They're for the rest of their life. They never leave uh, where we grew up. And I didn't want to be a townie. I didn't want to join the armed forces, which is what my, what my dad had done to leave Boston and then you know, ricochet right back. And I wanted to go to college. And so I needed to get some scholarship money and, and, uh, and try to get as far away as I could. So I went to the University of Colorado Boulder. And, you know, you don't learn this until later on, but yeah, I, everything I was trying to escape, lo and behold, followed me there because the problem was me. It, was, it wasn't where I was from. And so, you know, I, I pulled a, a geographic and moved across the country and found that, lo and behold, I, I, I didn't solve anything. Eventually, I had the same sort of problems that I had back home. And, and then I started trying to get sober, you know, early on. So before I was even legally able to drink, I had started to dabble with sobriety and try to figure out how I might help myself because I, I experienced panic attacks and, you know, I had bouts of depression, all sorts of stuff. And it wasn't until later on when I graduated CU, I moved to Los Angeles to be an actor and, and I hit absolute rock bottom in LA. So in LA, what was that like? Yeah, it's, it was interesting because on the outside, everything looked awesome, right? Like I, I had the right the right look. 
I was going to these acting classes and going on auditions and I, I hung out with all the, the cool kids and, um, you know, I was able to pay my rent and, and had a job. And on the inside, it was just struggling. Every day was a struggle. And I was able to hold it together for a while. And then at a certain point, I, I hit absolute rock bottom and, you know, I had a depressive episode. I couldn't get out of bed. And I got to the point where, where I had suicidal ideation, didn't really know what I was experiencing, but you know, I, I was, it's funny because it was like depression on top of anxiety, which of course now I know what I know. And you know, the comorbidities between those two are, are pretty high, but at the time I was, it's just, it seemed like extremes, you know, having a panic attack and then, and then, you know, in the midst of being, you know, clinically depressed. And I got to the point where I, I didn't know what else to do. I was curled up in a ball in my apartment in North Hollywood and I called the suicide hotline and talked to a complete stranger for, it must've been an hour. And, you know, they ended up getting me into see a therapist who referred me to a psychiatrist. And I unfortunately went on the merry-go-round of medication and for months, and it just made things worse, which is probably pretty common for a lot of the folks I talked to as well. But it was, it felt like, oh, Prozac, you know, I'm all amped up and I can't sleep. All right, well then try Paxil. Now I can't get out of bed. Okay, well, it was, so it was like this Celexa, Wellbutrin. It was trying all these different SSRIs to try to get the right one to fit. And at a certain point I was like, you know what? Oh, and then of course, throwing benzodiazepines on top of that for the panic disorder. And it was like, I am an addict. Maybe I should have led with that because, you know, once I get my hands on Xanax and things like that, I'm off to the races. And it was a terrible mix for me. But at the same time, as much as that sucked when it was happening in retrospect, that was the, tra <laughs> was the trap door in my rock bottom, which dropped me into a 12-step program. And I had been familiar with 12-step programs because I, where I grew up, my dad, interestingly, had gotten sober a couple of years before. I didn't trust it because I didn't trust his sobriety at the time. But I was willing to try anything. And that's, and that's what I think happens. You get to a point where you're like, I will do anything because this is absolutely terrible. And so anything is better than this. So I started going to these Hollywood AA meetings and NA meetings. And oh, man, it was a scene. And I couldn't stay sober because I spent all my time trying to be super cool. So I <laughs> talk sitting in, an, in a meeting where people are trying to save their own lives. And I'm, and I'm trying to like do the James Dean thing where I'm like, oh, I'm suffering and all, I'm so deep and, and dark and brooding because I'm trying to impress the girls in the room. Of course, I kept going out and, and relapsing. And I talked to another guy who was an actor who I respected. And he was like, buddy, you can't save your face and your ass at the same time. <laughs> you've got you've to gotta pick one or the other. So why don't you come to this meeting? It's, it's at 7 a.m. and it's in a bar. And I was like, that sounds awful. And, and he was like, and it's a men's meeting. There are, no, there are no girls in this meeting. And I was like, well, that's not for me. And he was like, you should probably come. I think this would be good for you. And I thought, all right, all right, I'll, I'll check it out. And so I go to this meeting and it was an absolute pirate ship. It was just these surly old dudes who had like 30, 40 years of sobriety 
and I walk in and, and I'm, I'm like Captain Cool. Like I've got my, my motorcycle boots on and my leather jacket. And I'm like this young hip actor, you know, doing my best Marlon Brando impression. And, and these guys tell me, I'm like, hey, what's up? And Brendan, like, oh, I don't drink coffee because, you know, I'm too cool for coffee. So they were like, great, Brendan, we're glad you're here. Why don't you sit down, shut the F up and don't talk for a year? And I was like, what? <laughs> uh, no, I've, I've got things to say. And they were like, you don't have things to say, though, because your best thinking got you here. And so what could you possibly have to add? that's of any value to anybody in this room. And I thought, oh man, these guys are total jerks. I do not want to stay here. And they were like, tell you what, if you, if you can sit down and learn something for a year, we'll let you talk in a year. And I was like, oh man, these guys are the worst. And they just tough loved me. And I, out of, I stayed sober out of spite for a year just so I could talk. And, <laughs> and granted, I didn't, have, I, did, I didn't know how to make relationships with men. Like that was really foreign to me. I didn't have a relationship with my dad. I, I didn't know how to make a relationship like that work. And I didn't have like guy friends. I, my mom was a hairdresser. She had a salon. And so I grew up around mostly women. That, those are the people that I was around. And I didn't feel comfortable. Men made me very uncomfortable. And so, so this was the best and the worst thing for me at the time. I thought it was the worst. It turned out to be the best because I stopped trying to be cool. I actually got, I got a hold of how the program worked. I was able to stay sober. And now I'll, it'll be 22 years in February. I've been sober. So it, congratulations. Thank you. Thank you. That's fantastic. Wow. So I'm just envisioning you walking into that room with all those men, those, those burly men. And they're just like looking at this guy. Who is this guy? I think he is. Oh yeah. Yeah. And, and honestly, there's because it's, it's LA. Right. And so like there are legit rock stars in that room who I recognized and looked up to, you know, they were on the soundtrack of my middle school dances. And I'm like, holy shit, like this is, <laughs> this is incredible. But at the same time, I'm too cool to be starstruck by anybody because I don't care who you are. I'm, I'm the coolest guy. In <laughs> oh man, the brooding, the brooding was a full-time job at the time. I had no humor at all in me, which is funny. I learned to laugh again in sobriety because it was just dark. So dark. I thought if I'm going to be an actor and a writer, I have to suffer and you know, all that nonsense that that you pick up as a as a I was gonna say a young man, but I know a lot of young ladies who've done the exact same thing, which is like if I'm gonna be an artist, I've gotta just be miserable. And I, I met a lot of successful actors and musicians and writers and and they were like, That's that's absolute nonsense, man. Like you there's no, nowhere in the rule book does it say you have to be a miserable human being. That's, that's not true. If you want to be Van Gogh, go ahead, cut your ear off. But we'll be sitting over here having, having a few laughs and enjoying our lives. And the men in that room taught me, really taught me how to be a man because I was, I was a boy at 22. I mean, I thought I was a grown, a grown man, but I didn't know the first thing about being an adult. Wow. So what you did know is what you grew up observing, right? And, and, and we learn as kids, we learn the best from the behaviors of those around us. And you were around with, with your dad and he showed you, he modeled to you how to handle your emotions, right? And that and you followed suit. And now 
you're in this this meeting with these men and some that you recognize, some who are famous, but that kind of goes to show that it doesn't matter how famous or how popular you are. Mental illness and mental health is going to affect you. It affects us all. It's an equalizer. It really is. You're exactly right. And it's, it's also a very powerful, can be a very powerful tool because you mentioned it several times hitting your rock bottom. And I talk to a lot of clients every, every week, every day. And a lot of them will talk about what that rock bottom is. It's different for everybody. A rock bottom is different for everybody. And, and that really what that means is absolutely there's no other way you can go unless you die. And so you hit that bottom and then you, you could have gone, kept going, right? There was a time there, there had to been a time where it switched in your mind that if I keep going and living this lifestyle, I am going to die. So I've got to do something about it. So that first moment that you stepped in, walked in and opened the door and sat down and you saw those men and they said that to you, that was your first step. To, to really grow. And that was your way of following a path that you didn't know where it was going, but you knew you couldn't keep going where you were going. And so it was a wake up call and you listened to those men. And finally at 22 years old, you have finally found some men who I'm sure you would never befriend and become friends with outside, like on the streets, but here they are willing to take you in under their wing, so to speak. And then you start learning what it means to be sober and at the same time, what it means to live like a man. And then from there, what, tell us what happened from there. I mean, honestly, it was a few, it was a couple of years before I felt comfortable in my own skin. I, I, I continued to struggle with, with things because I, I think what happens to most of us, um, you know, substance use disorder is a really interesting one because you strip away, you strip away the the alcohol, the drugs, whatever it is, and then you get to the underlying issue. And so, what I found for for me, within I don't know three within three to five years or so, is that I had all of these other things that had gone you know unaddressed, and I needed to as I worked through you know there's this twelve step program. There's it's very structured in terms of how you work through it and as you work through this exercise, I did all the 12 steps in the, in the first year. And then you just kind of check the box, I think for a lot of, for a lot of us. Um, and then as you keep working through it and you have a sponsor and it's like a, you know, it's, it's a, a mentor or a peer that you look up to, um, who's been there, done that and, and can kind of help guide you. Hopefully <laughs> it's done well, it's not exactly a licensing or anything that goes into it. So you're, you're, yeah, you're, you're hoping you get the best you can find, but you, you know, you listen to a lot of different, different, different guys talk in meetings and you, you find somebody who you think might be a good fit for you. Um, and for me, once, once I got to the point where, um, I stayed sober for a little while and I could start to work with other guys, it, it wasn't working with young men, um, that I really started to get it and understand that I was just scratching the surface. Um, and because of who I am, I needed to, to kind of go further. And so it wasn't enough. I mean, my, my dad, you know, God bless him. He, he passed away in, uh, in June. He was sober 
20, he got sober at 50, he died at 75. So he's over 25 years. And it was, it was within those 25 years that he and I built a relationship. I'm so grateful to have had that time with him. But he was super old school in the sense of he got sober and that was enough. It was enough for him. For me, I think maybe it was part of who I am or maybe it was, you know, the fact that I got sober young and didn't have as much, you know, baggage or uh, things that I had. Because honestly, getting sober at 50 is a lot different than getting sober at 22. Um, you've, you've, got a lot, <laughs> you've got a lot less damage that you have to fix, work through. And I was also in a group that, was so harsh. They were so harsh. John, they were like, we're going to, you got to smash your ego, like all of this stuff. And I was like, yeesh, it felt like boot camp. They're going to tear you down and build you up. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. But the beauty of it was, and that's what I thought at the time. Oh, they're going to, they're going to tear me down. They're going to build me into some like, uh, you know, AA bot who's going to walk around saying slogans one day at a time, like all this stuff. And I just thought that that is so not for me. This is a cult. I'm not feeling this at all. <laughs> but the truth is, and maybe I just found a, a great group of guys, but they, they helped to tear me down or they allowed me to smash my own ego. But then they allowed me to build myself back up. Nobody told me what I was supposed to be. I got to figure that out on my own. And, and not only that, but it was, I had to figure that out on my own. I had to figure out who I was without all this stuff uh, that I'd used to cope. And so then I went back and tried therapy again. And I worked through some of these things and I saw, then I got to see the value in it because I wasn't trying to, uh, you know, look cool and suffer anymore. I was actually wanting to work on specific things in my life to get better. And I got to sponsor a bunch of young guys and in sponsoring young guys and I mean, you know this because you do this professionally. I got to work with young people. And, and in doing so, I learned so much more about myself. And to see them flourish and thrive and turn their lives around, it holds a mirror back up to you. And you're like, wow, this is amazing. And there was a part of me that thought, I, I get it because AA was started in what, the 30s. And there, talk about stigma. I mean, gosh, in the 30s, <laughs> if you're... You're you. You're a deadbeat. You know you're never going to get a job again. Uh, so it had to be anonymous. I kept looking around and thinking, like, gosh, I feel like we're holding all of this really good stuff ransom over here, and people would benefit from this. I used to say all the time. I would talk to friends as an actor. You know, you. Uh, <laughs> I always joke that we're not the most stable group of people, people who stand up in front of other people and pretend to be somebody else, want to play make-believe for a living. So you meet all kinds of people who have all, all sorts of issues. And I used to think, gosh, they would, everybody would benefit from the stuff that I got to go through, but they don't have, there, there is no NA for panic disorder. There's no NA for depression. Um, there's no I mean, maybe there are support groups, but it's not, it's not easy just to walk in off the street and be like, gosh, I, I, I have panic attacks when I'm in the grocery store. And like, there's, there's no support. I'm sure there is a support group, but it's, it's not as easy as like looking it up online and finding a, a meeting down the street. And it's like some rundown church that you can go to. Um, so it's, it's harder. Like there's a, there's a much higher barrier to entry for a lot of people to, to overcome. And so in working in all the, 
uh, you know, in as an actor and entertainment and meeting all sorts of folks. And I realized that people could benefit. And I thought I can't just bring people into because uh, it's a pretty closed group, um, not just the group I was in, but it's it's a culture, right? Like you can't you it, it's an open there are open meetings and you can anybody can walk in and go. But but it is a bit of a closed door. Um, and I and, you know, you have to qualify. You have to say, like, oh, I'm uh, you know, I'm an alcoholic or I'm a drug addict or whatever. And like that's a that's a hard a hard bar for, uh, you know, some people to get over or, or maybe that's not even their thing. So they're not going to get in. And so I thought if I could, if I could tell these stories, not other people's stories, because obviously that would be a terrible thing to do. But if I could tell my own stories and share my experience, then maybe somebody else would put their hand up and get help somewhere because they hear a story and they think, gosh, this, this guy has his life together. Like he's doing okay. He seems he seems happy and he's telling me that he went through all this stuff. And that's, those were the stories that, that kept me coming back because I would see somebody who was nothing like me. They didn't look like me. One time I walked into a meeting, there was a guy, he was a, a retired general from Saudi Arabia. I mean, I couldn't be more different than this guy, like on the surface, but he told his story and he told my story you know, about his dad and growing up and the pressure of him to do this and that. And I thought, man, I went up to him after the meeting. I'm like, you know, we couldn't be more different, but like, we couldn't be more the same. And I think the power of storytelling was so uh, incredible to me that I wanted to, I tried to channel it into everything I wrote. I tried to, uh, and it made me a better writer. But then in my life, I thought, I'd love to do something with this someday. Um, But I was so so busy, you know, trying to get ahead in, in the entertainment world that it didn't come up till much later on when this, this, you know, a bunch of, of different pieces came together and I ended up going back to grad school. My wife and I, uh, she was an actor as well. Um, we met <laughs> doing Streetcar Named Desire. I was Stanley, she was Stella, you know, very, very typical LA, <laughs> LA story. And so we, at a, I, I always say I clawed my way to the middle and got stuck. I was a development executive. I got an MFA and I was doing screenwriting and then I went into development, but I couldn't get to that next level. And I, I looked around and thought, you know, all of the, all of the friends I have here who grew up in LA and they grew up in the, in the Hollywood system. And, you know, some of them were famous and some of them had famous parents and they were all so messed up because Hollywood will do a number on your head. And almost the more successful you are, the more of an absolute mind scramble it is for, especially for young, impressionable kids. And my wife and I decided we didn't want to raise kids in LA. And so she's from San Francisco. We decided we would go to the Bay and start our family there. And I thought, I gotta, I'm going to have to pivot. And so I went, I went back to school again because I'm a, a glutton for student debt. And I got an MBA from Babson which is where I'm from in Boston. And they're, they're really good at entrepreneurship. And I figure, oh, I'll just start a company. That's what I'll do. And I did that and it failed <laughs> within a few months out of grad school. And then I found myself, I worked at a, at a company that was in the executive mentorship space. And then I got kind of recruited over to lead the commercial function at a company called BetterUp. And so started, started to, to branch into mental health, which I was like, oh, this is something I really I'm interested in and I care about. And then from better up, I went to Big Health and to Happify and then to Wheel. 
And along the way, I, I kind of kept going deeper, deeper into this space, but I was still living this sort of dual life where there was the me on the, you know, my personal life, this guy who had, you know, been an actor. And my wife and I used to joke that's like the Jekyll and Hyde thing of like, oh, I'm like this, you know, neurodivergent ADHD, you know, depressed guy who struggles with this or that. And, you know, highly creative, all of these things. And then on, then on the other side, I'm like, no, I'm actually a, you know, I'm an MBA and I, I wear nice clothes and I put on a suit and I go to the office and I, and I run commercial teams and build sales functions at startups and, and I work in mental health, but I didn't allow those two things to, to coalesce. Like they didn't come together at all. I kept them separate. And I was in a meeting because I met with clients all the time. I would, I would build like I said, I'd build sales functions, I'd build sales teams or customer success. And so I was, I was always talking to clients and companies and, you know, these huge global organizations. And I was talking to an executive on the HR side and she was asking me about clinical efficacy and, and all the stuff for the digital therapeutics that we, that we had. And I was, we were talking about studies and stuff. And, and then she was asking me like, well, this is all great. You know, it sounds, it sounds like, you know, what you're, what you're, selling and what you guys are doing really works, but talk to me about engagement. Like what kind of engagement do you see? And, and I talked a little bit about engagement because of course she wanted to see higher numbers than what she saw with EAP. And I, I got the same questions all the time. So I had like you know, standard answers, but then for whatever reason in that conversation, she asked me about culture. Like how do we create a culture of mental health here? That's what we want to create. We have all these solutions and they're point solutions and everybody has this solution or that solution. And, you know, we talked about step care model when we, you know, when we look how it ties in, this is how we send people to higher levels of care here, or we meet people at this point, all the, you know, it's all, all great in terms of how it worked, but there, there was no creating a culture. And, and I, I took off my sales guy hat and put on my creative guy hat for a minute. And I said, we can't change your culture. That's not what we do. Like, if you want to change your culture, tell me why this is important to you. And she was like, well, it's important to me because, you know, I've got, I've struggled with anxiety disorder and I know what it feels like to be, to be an executive and, and to, you know, give presentations and, and to feel like you need to say, oh, excuse me for a minute and go into the bathroom so you can splash some water on your face or, or do some breathing exercises to get it under control. So you don't have an absolute panic attack. And I thought, now we're just two people being real. And I was like, that's that story that you just told me. That's how you change your culture. That's it. Tell that story, tell that story and tell executives to tell that story. And that's how you do it. And I went home and I told my wife and she was like, wow, that, that was, that was really powerful. What a, what a cool moment. And I thought, yeah, but I'm, I'm kind of full of shit, right? Because I had this moment where I could have told her all about my own experience and I didn't because I was afraid. I was afraid it was going to stigmatize me. I was afraid people would find out nobody would hire me. I had fooled them for so long. And if they found out, you know, that I'm just some punk actor from Boston, you know, like, who is going to give me a job? You know, I've, I've got them all bamboozled. And she was like, you know, you've, you've got your sobriety birthday coming up and you've been sober, you know, over a decade now. 
what do you think about, you know, you share it on Facebook, you tell people if they need help, that you'll help them. And I'm like, yeah, but those are my friends. It's a closed loop. And she was like, you, sh you should put yourself out there. Like you might be surprised. And I mean, my wife has always been smarter than I am. She's, I'm married up to say the least. And so I wrote this post on LinkedIn and it was about being sober for a number of years and what I'd gone through. And I put a picture on there of like my family and I, and and I remember looking at my wife and I was like, Audrey, this is, I was about to hit the, you know, the button to post. And I was like, this is either going to make my career or completely destroy it. And I'm never, never going to work again. And I hit send and then it was like, you know, crickets, nobody cared. And then all of a sudden it was like, you know, tick, 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 tick. And it, it felt like that, like the views and the comments and the things and people responded and they responded in a way that I, I had, you know, obviously hoped people would be supportive and, but of, but of course the reason I did it was more than anything, I wanted people to hear that somebody could succeed that was just like them. I pictured me, you know, sitting in my, my house in Boston and like, you know, in this blue collar world where I, I'm never getting out of here and, and feeling lost and not knowing where to go, not having anyone to talk to. If I could have heard someone like me say, kid, if you need help, go here. If you know, you're not alone. I've been where you're at right now, exactly where you're at. Cause I'm, I'm just like you. And if I had heard somebody like that, it could have changed my life. And thankfully I was really fortunate to, you know, get sober young and, you know, find the group of guys I did. And, but I mean, what am I? 1% of the people who actually need help, who get help, like that's, that's not good enough. And, you know, now we live in a world where somebody like the rock can talk about, you know, their own struggles. And like that is, I love him for that. Cause he's this big, strong dude. And he's like a dad and he talks about depression and what he's gone through. And it shows young men out there because I mean, I, I could get my wife on here and she could talk about her own experience. I, I tend to talk about men cause that's, that's my frame of reference and my viewpoint. But for me, it, it felt really hard as a young man to talk about these things. And so I guess it became a mission in some ways or this, this underlying need for me to tell my story, not, not for likes or for kudos or attaboys or, you know, pats on the head. But so somebody, because it happened every time, John, every time I post something that I'm like, yeesh, like it still feels uncomfortable, but someone will will DM me and say, thanks, man, I needed to hear this. Or like, how long have you been sober? Or what, how did you start? Like, they'll ask me questions. It's never the people that comment, you know, on the thread. It's always one-to-one -one, or it'll be somebody who, who's actually in my little circle here in Fort Collins. And they'll say at a barbecue or something, it'll be another dad who walks up to me and he'll go, Hey man, I saw this thing you posted on LinkedIn. And he'll start talking to me about like, what's going on with him. And he'll ask me about therapy and how do you, how do you even do that? And what does that look like? And it's incredible. To me, that's an extension of what those guys gave to me in that bar at 7am. And I love, I love that program. For me, it was super helpful, but I think it's like, it's too good not to share what I've learned outside of that group. I don't have to be anonymous. I don't feel like it benefits anybody for me to keep it to myself. I do believe that you know, if you got to give it away to keep it. And so, so yeah, if I can share my story at all and 
somebody else can get help and or I can inspire somebody who doesn't look like me, who doesn't have the exact same experiences to share their story. And that story resonates for somebody else. Like that to me is incredibly powerful, right? Like I see people all the time. There's this guy I follow on LinkedIn who's a young guy, I forgot his name, mental health advocate. And he's, he's doing incredible things for like LGBTQ teens who, as you know, have a completely different set of struggles that they have to deal with. But to see somebody like him, incredible. Like what, what a gift for him to be able to give that back to other, you know, young kids out there who are, who are struggling and looking for people like, oh, wow, this guy looks just like me. He's telling my story. And, and I love that about LinkedIn. And, and that's exactly right. And, and I love how you are combining your love for in, entertainment and media and your discovery of your own mental health and you're using that for good. And I love, I love how you were, you were nervous about posting your first post on LinkedIn. Oh no, is anybody going to read this? Is this going to make an impact? And now, now you have found a voice on LinkedIn and you have a massive following and tell me, we only have a, just a couple of minutes left, but can you tell us a little bit about your journey on LinkedIn, where you're at on LinkedIn and how people can follow you on LinkedIn? Yeah, I think my journey on LinkedIn really for me, it's just funny because I, I talk to people all the time and they'll say like, oh, LinkedIn isn't Facebook. Like you get those, those people who, and, and I always say, I tie everything I do back to work because I, you're like Simon Sinek, right? Like your, your why is so important. And for me, my why is my family. It's, it's this, this life that I'm trying to live. It's being a better human being. It's helping as many people as I can. That ties directly into my, my life and my work. And showing up in a way that's authentic to me is important. And like, that's how you get the... My work has gotten so much better once I became a fully integrated human being. And it's like, Face palm, right? Of, of course, of course, of course it did. But that's hard. It was hard for me to do. I know it's hard for a lot of people because, well, what are they going to think? It, it's like being in junior high again. So I've continued to post things that don't, and I've, some people have talked to me about this, like you're not selling anything. You're not promoting any program or, or you know what I mean? So it's, it's not like, like what's, what's the end goal for you here? And my end goal is pretty simple, which is like, if I could reach one person, one person who decides to get help or one person who tells their story and that has a massive impact. I don't have to be the guy because I don't think I'm important in that sense. It's not my voice. It's encouraging other people to share their voice and their stories. And this comes back to that story about the conversation I had with that executive. That's how we change culture, whether it's at a company or whether it's in the world, like a small group of people can literally change the world if uh, I'm butchering this quote, of course, but, <laughs> but if we all band together and do it, then absolutely we, we can. And I think if we can encourage people like you and I can encourage people to share their stories, then, then it makes it okay. And if it makes it okay, then more people will get help. We'll see less people struggling or getting to the point where they hit a crisis and that's the only way they get help. Yeah. Yeah, no, I, I think that's exactly right. And people can resonate with that and they can resonate with your story and it's coming out on LinkedIn. And if you're listening to this, if you've been listening to Brendan and, and you're, you're relating, so, oh my gosh, that's me. 
or, oh my gosh, that's my son, or, oh my gosh, that's my daughter. And you're struggling and, and maybe you don't know where to turn or you need some encouragement. Follow Brendan on, on LinkedIn, find him, Brendan Kelly. I'm sure he's not that hard to find. And make sure you follow him because he is an advocate and a mental health influencer. You heard his story and he wants to share it and he wants to encourage you to share your story. And that is how we change culture. That is how we destigmatize mental health is to be okay with talking about our own struggles. And that is a beautiful, beautiful thing. Well, Brendan, before I let you go, I have one last question. And it's a question that I ask all of my guests, and that has to do with self-care. And I, I do talk a lot about self-care. I'm an advocate of self-care because we got to take care of ourselves before we can take care of others. What are some things that you would say are some of your go-to for self-care? Yeah, that's a great question. I, I will talk to a therapist. So I think that's, that's an important thing that I try to keep up with, you know, in, in between like corporate jobs right now, because I left one company and now I'm consulting. So I've got to figure that out with, <laughs> with healthcare. They don't make it easy, but I'm, I'm a huge believer in, in talking to people. I, I like therapists for the, the reason that there's evidence-based modalities that they can use. And, and I'm aware of that that we can work through on because I, I usually come in at this point to work on very specific things like processing the grief, you know, of my father passing away. So I'm, I'm working through things, whether it's CBT or DBT or there things that have been helping me. So that's one piece of it. But the other piece for me, I need to do physical things. So I have a treadmill in the garage. And then I also, I live in Colorado and I can run out my door and, and be on a, a path you know, that winds into the mountains in like five minutes. And that's a big thing. I grew up running. I was, uh, <laughs> I'm sure we could unpack that, <laughs> but I grew up as a runner. I ran track and for me moving and running, it, it changes my outlook on everything. I mean, there's obviously a physiological effect, the endorphins and whatnot, but I also do a lot of thinking when I run and, if, and it, it changes the way I look at the world. And so being physical for me is is a huge part of it because I, I'm you know I'm an Irishman. I'm prone to depression, but what I find when I move, it's such a natural way for me to keep it the the darkness at bay, so to speak. So that, and then I think the other thing is, I've got a five year old, a seven year old, and I have I have a little girl on the way, and. Man, spending time with my kids is the best thing in the world. There's nothing, to me, there's nothing better to change my mood instantly. If I just get out of my own way, like get out of my head, get out of my way and just be in the moment with them because they're, I mean, little kids, they're so in the moment. They just, they live moment to moment and it's so fun and it's the best. I mean, to me, that's probably the biggest factor. And then, of course, spending time with them, it brings me back to my why, right? Like everything I do is, is for this. And if I can't enjoy these moments, then what, what am I doing it for in the first place? Yeah, I love that. Well, very, very cool. Thank you for your encouragement. Thank you for your voice and for being willing to talk about your story. It's a fantastic 
and I, I just, I appreciate you just how open you are and have been. And, and thank you so much for coming on the show. Yeah, my pleasure, John. I've been following you as well on LinkedIn for a while. And so I'm psyched that we actually finally got a chance to sit down and chat. Yeah, same here. It's been a pleasure. And I know we're going to continue this relationship on LinkedIn and maybe off LinkedIn someday. You never know. Absolutely. <laughs> That's awesome. And I want to thank all of you for listening. And I appreciate you all. And I just want to encourage you to continue to work on your mental health, whatever your story is. Your story may not be exactly the same as Brendan's, but you have a story and live it. And don't be ashamed to talk about it and get the help that you need and work on your mental health a little each day. And I'm going to let you go with this. Just know that the Mental Health Today show has been championing your mental health since 2015. Take care, my friends. Until next time. Bye-bye. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Ohio, ready for some quick mental health facts? Let's go. Nearly 2 million Ohioans live with a mental health condition. In the U.S., more than 50% of people will be diagnosed with a mental illness in their lifetime. Depression is a leading cause of disability worldwide. So why are some of us still stigmatizing people living with a mental health condition when we know all of this? Let's listen to the facts and beat the stigma. Ohio, challenge what you know about mental health at beatthestigma.org.